Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. We are now in day 12 of this Russian invasion of Ukraine. You see these images of people dying, of people fleeing their home, of people seeing their homes destroyed. You hear stories about people forced to deal with uh, loss of energy. You hear stories of a million and a half refugees forced to leave their country. It is literally an international crisis. Well, I think the question that America is trying to deal with, wherever you come down on the political spectrum, is what should America do next? You have people like uh, Vladimir Zelensky urging the establishment of a no-fly zone. You have people like uh, Senator Lindsey Graham urging the assassination of Vladimir Putin. You have uh, others urging for uh, further sanctions. Vladimir Putin saying further further sanctions would end up being an, what he would consider to be an act of war. Well, someone who has been following this issue for a long time and who has been pretty accurate in terms of his warnings on this issue has been Ted Galen Carpenter. He's a senior fellow for defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Kind enough to join us right now. Ted, thanks so much for joining me at uh, what I know is a tough time on the radio. Yes, Frank, it, it certainly is tough. This is probably the nastiest crisis Europe has had in uh, more than seven decades, really, since World War II. And we have to be very careful that we don't make a bad situation even worse. And a lot of the ideas being floated about very casually provide extreme danger for the United States to become fully entangled in this war, which right now is just between Russia and Ukraine, but we could become a belligerent. And the last thing we ought to want is a direct military confrontation between the United States and Russia. That automatically has nuclear implications. We need to fully recognize that with people tossing about proposals for involvement in this conflict, it could mean World War III and all that that implies. Mm -hmm. So we need a lot more caution than what we have seen coming out of Washington recently. The conventional wisdom over the course of the last two weeks has been that Russia is the bad guy here, that they are the aggressor and that they went into a a sovereign country. You've pointed out that uh, a lot of this NATO expansion, which people have been warning against, certain people for the last 30 years, would have led to exactly this kind of a reaction from Russia. First, do you buy that wisdom that uh, or that conventional wisdom that Russia is the the unabashed bad guy here? And two, can you explain to our audience how NATO's expansion might have led to Russia lashing out at a con- uh, another country like this? Well, let me say up front that uh, Putin's action is thoroughly over the top. Yes, there were uh, Western provocations. A lot of them 
I have documented them at length over the last more than 25 years. Uh, the United States and its NATO allies handled relations with Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union about as ineptly as a country could possibly handle those relations. Nevertheless, there was nothing uh, going on in the weeks immediately preceding the invasion to warrant a full-scale war on Russia's part that threatens Ukraine's independence and existence as a sovereign country. So Putin is primarily responsible in the short term for what happened. But the West bears a lot of responsibility for what happened over that period from the early 1990s right up to the explosion of this crisis. And the worst thing that the United States and its allies did was expand NATO eastward to Russia's border in violation of promises implied in negotiations with uh, Moscow in the early 1990s. Now, that's kind of a violation of the basic principles of international relations. One major power does not move a powerful military alliance that it leads up to the borders of another major power and expect matters to turn out well. That is incredibly provocative. It is incredibly aggressive. And sooner or later, you're going to get pushback. And what we're seeing now is pushback big time. In terms of this idea of a no-fly zone, President Zelensky was, again, calling for this on Friday in his meeting with, uh, I think, a Zoom meeting with over 200 members of Congress. Explain to American audiences why the establishment of a no-fly zone wouldn't necessarily be in America's best interests and maybe not even in the interests of world security. Well, let me say that... Zelensky and the Ukrainian government really have nothing to lose by proposing this. Uh, They will very likely lose this war sooner or later if nothing else is done. But you have to consider what imposing a no-fly zone means. In all likelihood, if the United States or NATO did this, Russia would not crawl away with its tail between its legs and obey that no-fly zone. They would send their planes, as they're doing now, in the skies over Ukraine. Well, then, whoever is enforcing the no-fly zone, the United States or NATO, would have to either uh, decide that, well, this was a bluff and it was a nice try, or they would actually have to enforce it. Enforce it means shooting down Russian planes. That means the West and Russia would be in a state of war automatically. And no one knows where that would go, how that might escalate. Russia might be content with just having aerial battles in the skies over Ukraine. That's possible. On the other hand, they might strike at NATO air bases where the... uh, enforcement planes were coming from. Russia might even escalate and take out one or more of those bases with 
tactical nuclear weapons. So this is an incredibly reckless idea. And the people who are advocating this are utterly, utterly irresponsible. Americans who are advocating this are risking getting their country into a nuclear war with all the losses that that could imply. We have people just tuning in. We're talking with Ted Galen Carpenter. He's a senior fellow for defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. A couple of times over the course of the last two weeks, I've pointed out that while what Putin and Russia is doing is completely inappropriate, and I believe to some extent it's irrational from their perspective, that you had to expect for some of the reasons that you stated a minute ago, some sort of blowback to NATO aggression. Now, occasionally when I mention that or a guest will mention that, I'm deluged with emails and uh, phone calls, tweets, text messages that somebody will say, well, I don't hear you exploring the root causes of any other problems in society or any other problems in uh, in terms of international policy. One, I don't think that's true. But two, do you think that uh, I am somehow being insensitive to what Ukraine is going through by exploring what the United States and what NATO did to get us to this point? I don't think you're uh, being insensitive at all. I think uh, it's absolutely imperative to know the full context and to face up to the full context. This was an incredibly insensitive, arrogant policy that the West pursued. And Russia has been sending warning signals for a long time. When the United States, George W. Bush specifically, talked about bringing Ukraine and Georgia into NATO, and Georgia acting as though the U.S. had its back, began to throw its weight around, Russia responded militarily and uh, seized control of two regions in Georgia that had been in a secessionist spat with the central government. That was warning number one. Warning number two was when the U.S. and its European allies interfered in Ukraine to illegally replace a pro-Russia government, an elected pro-Russia government, with a government favorable to NATO and the West. Putin responded by seizing Crimea. So you have to ask with these Western officials, how tone deaf did they have to be to not pick up on any of those warnings? Putin was warning back in 2007 in his speech to the Munich Security Conference, that NATO was crowding Russia, that it was doing a number of things to jeopardize Russian security, and that Russian patience was running out. We needed to have listened to those warnings. Our policymakers in multiple administrations didn't. And now we're paying the price. Mm, and no, it, it certainly is a shame. And uh, I find it tough to argue with your analysis. Uh, one of the things that we hear is that uh, the United States pledged it when the Soviet Union was collapsing not to expand NATO eastward. Some folks have said that that 
promise from George H.W. Bush and Jim Baker shouldn't really count because, one, um, those that was never written. And number two, because that was a pledge made to the Soviet Union. And then some of the countries that emerged as independent states after the Soviet Union fell, uh, Lithuania, Montenegro, Estonia, and even Ukraine wanted to be part of NATO. So that commitment to a country, the Soviet Union, that no longer exists, shouldn't really be carrying the kind of weight that some ascribe to it. Where do you come down on the historical record? Did the United States pledge that we wouldn't be expanding NATO eastward? And in your view, is that pledge a legitimate one? The latest scholarship on that, uh, including major articles by Professor John Schifferson and Professor Mark Trachtenberg over the last few years, shows that the U.S. certainly led Moscow to believe that NATO would never expand east of the border of a united Germany. And it's a pretty lame excuse uh, for people now to say, well, well, sucker, you didn't get it in writing. That's, that's unworthy of the United States to take that kind of defense. And Russia was the principal successor state by far to the Soviet Union. So that kind of promise was certainly implied uh, to Russia in the years following the end of the Soviet Union. So it's a, it's a pretty lame defense for proponents of NATO expansion to come up with those kinds of excuses. We've also heard that, look, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in the aftermath of the Soviet Union's dissolution, and that part of the commitment that the West made to Ukraine was, oh, it's okay, uh, Ukraine, give up your nuclear weapons and we'll protect you from further aggression from any other countries. Do we have, if not a legal obligation, something of a moral obligation because Ukraine did in fact give up their nuclear weapons to come through for them here? I can understand that argument, and certainly uh, the United States uh, does not come off in a a very pleasant moral position. On the other hand, it's still not worth risking a war with a nuclear-armed Russia. I argued at the time, in the early 1990s, that Ukraine ought to think twice about giving up the nuclear arsenal it inherited from the Soviet Union. It didn't have operational control of the weapons at that time, but it certainly would have been possible for them to uh, refurbish them and and, uh, gain operational control given a number of years. Instead, they trusted to paper promises. And uh, frankly, that might be a lesson for Ukraine and a lot of other countries, not to count on paper promises from the U.S. or any other major power. In fact, uh, you look at what happened in Libya, you look at what happened in a variety of other countries where they gave up uh, their weapons of mass destructions. And, uh, you mean, why would any country give up their weapons of mass destruction after seeing what happened with Ukraine? It seems like if you have weapons of mass destruction, the one commonality is that the United States or any other country won't be messing with you. That's a very good point, and I'm glad you brought up the Libya example. That was one where 
the United States and its Western allies talked Muammar Gaddafi into giving up its, his nuclear program. Didn't even have a full arsenal yet, but he gave up the program. And we saw how that turned out for him. The United States and its allies, at the first opportunity, stabbed him in the back. So, there, again, there's a lesson there. We've heard a great deal about sanctions, Uh, President Biden instituting a lot of sanctions on some individual Russians. Uh, We're seeing sort of the international community, even non-governmentally, organizations like FIFA, uh, movie studios, treat Russia as something of a global pariah. Do you think sanctions and this sort of uh, public shaming of Russia that the international community is doing will be effective in getting Russia to change their behavior? The historical record shows rather clearly that in terms of the ability to inflict pain on ordinary people in a target country, sanctions work very, very well. In terms of getting a target government to capitulate and change its policies, especially if it's a high-priority policy, the record is dismal. So I would uh, be wary of thinking that Russia is going to cave on an issue like this, which clearly Moscow regards as absolutely central, simply because of the pain inflicted on the Russian people by these sanctions. I'm not optimistic at all that that strategy will succeed. We're also seeing some countries that don't traditionally do this sort of thing, like Germany, come through with lethal military aid for the Ukrainians to fight the Russians. The United States, there have been calls, uh, some politicians locally even doing gun drives uh, to collect guns to send to Ukraine to help the Ukrainians fight the Russians. Should the United States be arming uh, these Ukrainians? Do we have uh, – are they – occupying the moral high ground, the Ukrainians, and is what comes with that moral high ground aid from the United States government? The U.S. has to be very, very cautious here. At what point does providing military aid to Ukraine make the United States a de facto belligerent in the eyes of Russia? Russians are not going to appreciate having U.S. weapons being used to kill Russian soldiers. And the more lethal, the more sophisticated the weapons. For example, the suggestion that we send jet fighter planes to Ukraine, uh, that's risking the United States stumbling into becoming a belligerent in this war and ending up fighting Russia that way. That's a proposal almost as dangerous as the no-fly zone. Mm. So we have to be very, very cautious about uh, being loose with military aid to Ukraine. Regardless of the merit of Ukraine's cause in this case, the United States needs to look at the, after the interests of its own people first and not risk sacrificing them to, uh, in the name of standing, uh, standing uh, together with Ukraine. 
What about what someone like Senator, something like uh, what Senator Lindsey Graham is proposing, both on Twitter and then reiterated again on television, where he's called for entities within Russia to attack, uh, to uh, take Vladimir Putin out. The implication being that there should be some sort of a Brutus, some sort of an assassination within Russia. Is that responsible for an American politician to be calling for the assassination of a world leader? How does this end? Somebody has to step up to the plate. Is there Brutus in Russia? Is there a more successful Colonel Stauffenberg in the <coughs> Russian military? The only way this ends, my friend, is for somebody in Russia to take this guy out. You would be doing your country a great service and the world a great service. Well, I'll tell you, uh, first of all, there's a law on the books in the United States not to be involved in the assassination of foreign, uh, foreign officials. Secondly, um, you know, both can play at that game. And once the U.S. goes down that path, I'm not sure I'd want to be a high-level U.S. official because that would put a target on their backs. The Russians, again, uh, might feel they have nothing to lose by escalating this. So, Ted, we've talked about sanctions. We've talked about a no-fly zone. We've talked about uh, lethal aid to the Ukrainians. It seems like there are no great options here on that front. What then should the United States do as we go forward here, aside from keeping your warning in mind to be careful? What does be careful look like? What should we do? Well, I would say the first thing we should do is propose a diplomatic settlement uh, in Ukraine uh, with the United States and its allies backing off, affirming that Ukraine will never become a member of NATO, uh, trying to codify a fully neutral status for Ukraine, something akin to uh, Austria in the Cold War, or even a uh, Russian-leaning neutrality like Finland. Uh, I don't know which country can mediate a settlement of that sort. But uh, Ukraine could become a meat grinder for Russia, something akin to Afghanistan or even a bit worse. But um, that doesn't benefit the Ukrainian people either to have a multi-year insurgency that will bleed that country dry. I think there are political types in the United States who don't, absolutely don't care. They're perfectly willing to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. But that doesn't uh, benefit the people of Ukraine. It's not a moral stance for the United States. That's not the way out of this crisis. I'm sure you've heard this criticism more times than I, that to do that, to allow Vladimir Putin to get away with invading a sovereign country and to essentially not stand up to that sort of aggression would be almost like what Chamberlain did in the run up to World War II in appeasing Hitler at Munich. Do you think that uh, Putin is playing a Hitlerian role here and would kind of not standing up to Putin be a similar Chamberlain level of appeasement? I am so weary of the constant invocations of the 1930s model. Um, This has probably come closer than the vast majority of examples the U.S. has cited over the decades if you listen to U.S. officials, Saddam Hussein was the new Hitler. Slobodan Milosevic was the new Hitler. Ho Chi Minh was the new Hitler. Uh, they just they, they almost need to form a Hitler of the Month club to trot out new villains. 
but this one certainly is closer to the model. Nevertheless, it's still significantly different. Russia is not Nazi Germany. Uh, for one thing, Nazi Germany was much, much uh, stronger, both militarily and economically, than, than Russia. And we don't have to take the assumption that we must fight to the finish against Putin. There can be a compromise solution here. And we ought to look to that and powers who are not completely under Washington's control perhaps need to step out and try to mediate this conflict and bring it to conclusion. Finally, sir, back in July, you wrote a piece saying that uh, Ukraine was an, a dangerous and unworthy ally for the United States. Now that uh, Vladimir Zelensky has sort of become an international rock star, at least in the West, and uh, people are uh, changing their social media profiles to the colors of the Ukrainian flag, I'm wondering if you can briefly explain why you felt that way. Why is Ukraine a dangerous and an unworthy ally for our country? Well, the media, of course, portray Ukraine as this model ideal democracy. It is nothing of the sort. Uh, it is a quasi-democracy at best, a terribly corrupt government, and one that has more than its own share of highly authoritarian tendencies. So if Americans think that should the United States go to war on behalf of Ukraine, they're defending this wonderful, pristine uh, democracy, this bastion of freedom, uh, the picture is a lot murkier, a lot more mixed than that. Mm. And Ukraine did engage in actions, I think, that uh, antagonized Russia brought this day closer in some odd way they they actually played into vladimir putin's hands into the hands of the hardliners in moscow and that's a tragedy all right Uh, and potentially for us ted galen carpenter i appreciate the time this morning it's always a treat to talk with you thank you very much if you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.